To listen without ads, head over to patreon.com slash right and wrong. Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love the it. writing is sort of everything, right? Like you kind of can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing... So some there. readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. Joining me today is an author whose first novel was published back in 2011 and since then has gone on to publish five more leading up to her latest release, One of the Good Guys, which came out at the start of the year. It's Araminda Hall. Hello, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Let's kick things off with uh, the brand new, exciting book. It's been out for a few weeks now. One of the good guys. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, it is basically the story of a man who relocates to a very remote stretch of coast in southern England because he has... um, He's sort of trying to recover from the breakdown of his marriage and he's really nursing a broken heart and he just cannot understand what went wrong because he sort of was everything that women say they want. You know, he wasn't likely to be found down the pub getting drunk and he wasn't, um, you know, he was he was always sort of, he was happy, to, he really wanted kids, he was happy. He did all the domestic things in the house. Uh, he just sort of thought he was like the man that women want. Um, and then when he gets there, he meets um, this artist who is living on the edge of the cliff, about a 15 minute walk from his house. And she it, it, she lives in this like falling down cottage on the edge of this edge of this eroding cliff. And they sort of start to form this friendship. And he thinks that she maybe has some some sort of secret to life that he um, doesn't know about. But then meanwhile, there are two young women are doing a coast to coast walk um, and they are, they're walking for charity and they're protesting male violence against women and they're getting closer and closer to Cole and Lenny. And when they reach them, they camp um, really near both of their houses overnight and they just disappear, completely disappear into thin air. And as happens with, um, you know, when a certain type of woman goes missing, um, it becomes like this media frenzy and um, Cole becomes a suspect. And um, yeah, the story sort of unravels from there. (laughs) Wow. Very, very dramatic. I feel like there's, there's sort of multiple things going on here. What was the, what's the kind of the first inspiration for this, the kind of core idea that, that you wanted to explore? I mean, like, yeah, I, I always, when I write, I always start with a theme really, or like, a, I mean, I sort of, I don't think of it as a theme at the time, but it's like, a, yeah, an initial sort of idea sparks. And I was really, um, I sort of, I mean, all my books are, are, are really um, concerned with gender politics, basically. And, you know, I've been thinking about it for a really, really long time and writing about it for a really long time. And I think like when Me Too happened, I had that sort of crazy sense of optimism that a lot of women had, that things were really going to change. And then in the past few years, I've just noticed this sort of growing feeling of anger and um, and disillusionment among me and my female friends. And like I couldn't put my finger on it because, you know, laws have changed and, you know, I mean, you know, when I was a young woman, um, you, um, you know, it was perfectly acceptable for men to touch you or 
or make comments to you or, you know, it was just something we had to put up with. And, you know, when my mom was growing up, you had to sort of physically run away from people, you know, all the time. And and I felt like, oh, things have changed. You know, that's not acceptable anymore. I'm not really sure, like, why do I still feel angry? And then there's this walk I do near, uh, well, it's about 40 minute drive from my house. I live in Brighton. And you can get to this incredibly remote stretch of cliff um, quite easily. Well, I went, and it's um, it's a walk that I've always loved to do. Done it with uh, my kids and you know my husband loads. And um, I um, was I did it one day, and there were these little coast guard cottages on it. And um, every time I walk past them, I'm always struck by how. Um, isolated they are and how if I was living there alone how terrified I would be at night and I I sort of always have that thought and I've always thought to myself I would love to set a book here you know it's such an atmospheric setting but anyway I did this walk one day and I came home and that night I was going out in Brighton and I walked home alone at sort of 10 o'clock at night and I live very centrally in Brighton and I you know I don't have to walk really anywhere dodgy to get home it was a quick walk but I I felt scared you know and I turned onto a road and um, there was a man behind me but he you know very quickly crossed the road and overtook me you know I didn't feel in any danger from him but what I realized was that whenever I'm out and about after dark or even in the middle of the countryside in the day if I'm on my own I do feel this little sort of frisson of fear in the back of my mind and then it made me realize why I felt angry because I was like actually we can change laws, we can change um, perceptions, but until we feel safe on our streets it is or anywhere, you know, sort of feeling safe, safe felt like sort of the ultimate expression of equality to me. And of course, that is not confined to gender. That's, you know, sexuality or um, race or, you know, it can be religion in some parts of the world. So it just made me think we've got so far to go. And, you know, we've sort of been told, I mean, obviously, I can only write from the perspective of a woman. And We've been told that we have, um, we've come so far as women. And in some ways that's true, but actually there's so far to go and so few of us feel safe. And it just struck me that actually that sort of little threat of violence that hangs over all of us, so well, all of us, yeah, um, so often is incredibly disabling so yeah that was that sort of it's a very long-winded answer for telling you that sort of the genesis of the book (laughs) no that's great I mean that really kind of um it really highlights what you're what you are talking about the kind of things that you are discussing and exploring within the book beyond Mm -hmm. the fact that it is um obviously a a thriller and there's going to be twists and turns within that absolutely Speaking of thrillers, this is your sixth book. Yeah. Um, am I right in thinking all of them are thrillers? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, I think so. <laughs> I find <laughs> I find genres so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think every writer will always say, you know, when they write their first novel, they have they're not thinking about genre. And I think that's because as readers, we don't think about genre really. So I mean, I certainly don't as a reader, I don't think, oh, I only want to read thrillers. I mean, obviously I read loads of thrillers, but I also read loads of other types of books. So I'm like, I, yeah. So I feel like obviously, um, the more enmeshed in this as a job I've become, the more aware I've become of the idea of 
twists and you know beats and you know what what's expected of the genre that I write in so I would say my last um four books have most definitely been thrillers um and my first two I think are a little bit more woolly (laughs) (laughs) that's so true because I've had I've had a number of authors on here often debuts or or people authors talking about their debut yeah and I'll say oh so is this the genre and they'll say that's what that's what the marketing team told me it was it's like yeah and I mean I think that that, I think I mean that's it's you know publishing is a business like anything else and so you know we fit into categories and that's fine and actually I think also when you start thinking about what you're writing like I like I, when I was growing up, or still now, I absolutely adored reading Patricia Highsmith novels. And I had never thought of her as a thriller writer or a crime writer. Um, but, you know, so, but it's no surprise to me that those are the books that I like to write, you know, because I've always loved those books that combine, um, you know, a really good story with something to actually say as well. So, and thrillers, I think, sit so brilliantly in that ground. Yes. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And there's thrillers are usually obviously you can have like sci-fi or fantasy and kind mm-hmm. of merge genres, but thrillers are usually grounded in a sort of real life setting. Absolutely. I think that's especially what um the type sort of the subgenre which I write in, which is, you know, psychological thrillers. I think that's what um they you know those all of those writers I think know so well that you know the most scary thing is when your your just normal everyday life is disrupted and you know and how everyday life can be the most scary thing and how often you know like our brains are way more scary than a massive car chase or something like that so yeah it's totally grounded in the everyday so true. I mean, you take it even to like the most minor thing, you know, you have like an appointment or something at a certain time on a certain day. And for some reason you're dreading it. And then you get there, like the dentist, the dentist is exactly. a great example. A lot of people dread the dentist and then they get there and they're like, oh, that, that was fine actually. But I, in my head, I made it so much worse than it exactly. was going to be. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that is basically the definition of suspense. It is that mm-hmm. thing of, yeah. you know, um, it's, you know, suspense is all in the anticipation of something happening, basically. So, and I think that's what thrillers do. You know, they take the idea that something has happened or something is going to happen that is going to really affect or has really affected your main character. And, you know, they pull you towards it sort of thing and tease out. I mean, that's the thing. Thrillers are all about the why, not the who, you know. So, you know, I think I think in a lot of thrillers, obviously, there is a who involved. But mm-hmm. it's normally why the person has done what they've done. Yes. that's the, Even if it's like a twist kind of reveal situation, it's more interesting. It's like, oh, it was that person that's your brain kind of goes oh that's not what I expected but then the why is like oh that's exactly. the kind of like oh my god moment yeah, yeah, yeah totally true. exactly no I think I think that's why with most thrillers we know we know the the perpetrator as well as we know the victim for want of better words and so mm. whereas in crime novels um you could have a whole crime novel where you don't actually, you haven't met the perpetrator so much, you know. So, um, and that's fine. You know, it's a totally different thing. Crime is much more about solving clues, whereas thrillers are much more about um, getting into the mind of someone who's done something. (laughs) That's a really good, I'd I'd not thought too much about like kind of identifying factors of those two things. That's a really good way of kind of separating those two genres. Uh, I like that. While you're, so as I mentioned, sixth book, 
lots yeah. of thrillers while you're writing you know and, and I, i'm gonna assume you're already working on something new but while you're I writing am. are you <laughs> conscious of um kind of what you've written previously and not retreading this kind of similar story beats and characters yeah I mean definitely I mean I think that I think actually whatever genre you're writing in most writers have a theme like I think that um I think books without a theme um funnily this sounds like name dropping but I was uh, in the U- U- in the United States in America I'm published by Gillian Flynn and well I'm, it's a it's a big publishing company and Gillian Flynn has an imprint you know obviously she wrote Gone Girl, which is probably the yeah. best-known thriller of all time. And so I've just done a few events with her in America, and we were discussing this, and she was saying that novels without a theme, you can always tell, and they fall flat. And she was like, thrillers especially. She was like, if you don't know, she was like, you can have the most intricate plot that you've ever constructed. But if you don't have a reason for saying it, if the writer doesn't feel something deeply, which is normally political, really, then it falls flat. And it's. So, I think that is so, so true. I think writers have something, normally one or two things, like whatever genre you're writing in, that are incredibly important to you and that's sort of almost what spurred you into wanting to write so I think that that feeling goes through all your novels you know I certainly know I'm sort of rethinking the same ideas a lot but that said you obviously can't write the same book again and again so it's really important that you um obviously uh you know make a completely different story around it and also obviously all our ideas evolve you know even though I might be concerned with the same thing as I was when I started writing like 13 years ago I obviously things have changed in the world and things have changed in my mind and I've resolved things and I think sometimes when you read like a you know it's like if you think of writers who have you know you can read all their books or something that you can see like it's almost like a conversation they've been having with themselves through the course of their career and I so I feel like that is always true I think it's I think it's really hard as well to make yourself think oh I'm going to write about this because I I know it's zeitgeisty you know I think it's more that we just have to follow what we are thinking about really yeah so so your theme presumably throughout your kind of books as you mentioned was is is mostly gender politics but you're obviously telling different stories around that yes and yeah and obviously my ideas about it have have changed like I think I wrote a, um, I think it was um, three books ago I had a novel called Our Kind of Cruelty and that was you know in a way, that's probably my most similar in theme novel to um, one of the good guys. But actually what I've thought about, like in Our Kind of Cruelty, I was very um, much thinking about how women's voices are often silenced and we're not really listened to. And um, and also I was thinking about how hard it is to be taken seriously as a woman. And those are all themes that I'm thinking about in one of the good guys, but also I now have the added thoughts about Me Too and what that's done to the discourse. And so it's definitely an evolved um, series of ideas in this one. Um, and obviously a completely and utterly different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and also, I think uh, when we're talking about theme and things, you, you know, like you said, uh, Gillian Th- Flynn says that every thriller needs a theme. But at the same time, 
you you don't want that theme to necessarily be, feel like there's like a strong message that you're hitting the reader over the head with. Oh, like it is not, no. at its core a thriller, like an exciting kind of thriller, like who done it, why done it kind of thing. Absolutely, and I mean the best, um, uh, the best thrillers I think, or any books, in fact, are ones that you only really work out what the writer was saying at the end. You know, you don't, yeah, you don't want to have written a polemic of sort of, you know. I mean, I think you see that in, um, I think you see that in, like, I, I think actually, like. Jonathan Franzen, who writes, you know, obviously amazing literary fiction. He, you know, in the corrections, I only really figured out what he was writing at the end of the novel. And I loved that novel so much. But by the time he had got to freedom, I felt a little bit like, okay, you know, they were like, felt like there were whole passages about climate change that were incredible. I agreed with them, but I sort of felt like, oh, we, we don't need them. And I, so I think you do have to be really careful. I think you have to obviously let your story do everything. But yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's a hard balancing act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And I'd love to talk, um, you've mentioned the, you know, we talked about gender politics quite a bit. I'd love to dial it back to, before you um i think it was was it before you published your first novel in 2011 yeah uh, did you work in journalism yes that's right yeah i worked in journalism for years before that what kind of journalism was it i did um well i started out on women's magazines at a time when um like I don't know if you, you're probably too young, but like a magazine's <laughs> like just 17 and, you know, for teenagers actually. And then I moved into like women's, you know, like all those sort of, you know, big like glossy magazines. I mean, they barely exist anymore apart from like um, Vogue or, you know, it's the only one that sort of survived. And then I went into newspapers and I ended up on the mirror actually. But um, I always did features. I was never a news journalist. So, right. um, yeah. Okay. Because I'm just wondering, women's magazines and then something like The Mirror, and you, it's like you were saying, things are different now than they used to be. But if you go back to like the 90s and look at the way that like media treated oh my women, God, yeah. or like even just the women's magazines, which were just like full, not that they're not mostly consumerism now, but those kinds of things. Did that have like a big influence on what has kind of become your discussions? Oh, massively. I mean, my first novel, the protagonist is she works for women's magazines and she is okay. very, and she's very jaded about it. I mean, I was really aware at the time, I have to say. I mean, it was not a, it was not a revelation to me that we, that something terrible was going on, you know, because I was privy to all the um, editorial meetings where, you know, the way women were talked about was not good, even though you were in a room full of women normally. And um, I was privy to all the touch-up of photographs. You know, it felt, even then in the 90s, I was, a, I was a young woman, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I knew what we were doing was wrong. And it left a really horrible taste in my mouth a lot of the time. I do think that magazines have changed a lot now. I mean, I think magazines like Grazia have really, they really switched the dial in that they they gave women a, you know, Grazia is amazing in that it will have like a really hard hitting political feature next to a feature about um you know, the best 10 coats to buy for winter or something. And that's true of most, you know, most people are, you know, multidimensional and want to think about lots of different things. And also, I think there has been a real move 
recently in the last few years towards representing, you know, different types of women and different body shapes and different ethnicities. I mean, you know, it was, it, it's it's sort of, it's crazy when you look back at the women mag- women's magazines of the 80s and 90s, because it feels like it was just like if you were an alien and you came down to earth, you'd think all women looked one way and only <laughs> yeah. thought about um you know men and what they looked like and it's sort yeah. of and i do think things have come i mean i think that's why so many women's magazines like died because they you know they just weren't speaking to women so i think that i think that has changed a lot but yeah i'm not proud of my part in that <laughs> <laughs> but but obviously it was very informative in what can kind of inspired some of your your later novels and i'd love to know um at what point you started writing novels was it while you were doing that working in journalism or was it after or was it before oh no it was it's just sort of just been always i mean it always, was just okay. that's that's what i've always wanted to do but obviously <laughs> it's you know when you leave university you have to pay the rent and um, journalism seemed like the sort of uh, you know logical thing to do to me because um you know, I I sort of couldn't think of anything else I could do to get paid other than write things, and and um, so obviously that was that was sort of the way. But yeah, I mean, I was just writing my novels all the way through, and um, and then yeah, I did an MA actually in creative writing in two thousand and nine, I think, or ten, I can't remember, and there must have been nine because and um, and that was really sort of that was just really incredibly helpful because it helped a it helped me to sort of really hone how to write but it also really like practically helped with like how you approach it and who to approach and all those sorts of things so um yeah it was just sort of a question of just keeping on going <laughs> and right, lots of yeah, rejection yeah, yeah. before it happened <laughs> yeah yeah as is as is most often the way yeah. so how many if you can remember how many novels or like full manuscripts did you write before? Oh my goodness. Um, was it everything, everything or nothing? Was your everything debut, and right? nothing is my first. Mm. I mean, loads. I can't remember exactly because I mean, I really was genuinely writing books from really, really young. So, uh, you know, there will be plenty of books that never, you know, that literally just remained in my bottom drawer for, <laughs> yeah. you know, forever. Um, and then, in fact, my second novel was my, was actually the first novel that I ever wrote. But I sort of, when I went, it was the novel I took, I got onto my MA with, and it was the novel that I worked on all through my MA. And I sort of realized that I, it wasn't at all commercial. It's probably my least commercial novel, my second one. And I didn't, I sort of just realized that I was going to have to do something different. And so I sort of started again. That's when I wrote Everything and Nothing. So, I mean, just so many, so many, um, so many. I I definitely wouldn't know how many. (laughs) That's good. I mean, I definitely subscribe to the idea that one of the best ways to learn how to write a novel is just to write a novel. Yeah, and I think that um, stays true. I mean, I, I mean, it's not just however many novels that haven't seen the light of day but I mean each novel that has been published in mine I have so many drafts sitting on computers or you know or in drawers again I mean I honestly I mean I write each book so many times so um and I do I think that is the only way you 
you get to write basically or you get to produce something finished is just to plow on through until you start making it make sense yeah it's e- it's easy when you're like in a bookshop or, or just thinking about how talented um your favorite authors are to forget that the thing that you're reading is probably the like 10th 15th 20th iteration of that oh thing my that goodness. they did with other people and completely I mean that's the thing it's like before I show my agent anything who's my first port of call I've probably gone through three drafts myself and then her and I will go through a couple of drafts before it goes out to my editor or you know if you go on submission it's going to a wide pool of editors so and then whoever buys your book you'll go through a couple of drafts with them as well so and then of course you get into things like copy editing and everything which is where you're fine tuning so I mean yeah it's an incredibly collaborative long-winded process and every book has gone through probably at least 10 drafts before Mm. i I would say i would say around that and sometimes the drafts can be you know you don't have to literally start again each time (laughs) that would be terrifying but um i mean between draft one and two i do pretty much start again you know my first draft for me is like the place where i figure out exactly what i want to do and figure out the story and then it's only after I've written a first draft that I will write. Uh, and when I say plan, I mean, it's not a proper plan, but like I will, I will be able to structure the story then. And then I do start again. But from, from the second draft on, I would hope not to literally start again. <laughs> I would hope to just be able to sort of, you know, to play with basically what I have. But, you know, I mean, sometimes that involves cutting out chunks of story or moving it around or whatever, but yeah, sort of like you hopefully are slightly there by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So you actually, your second draft is actually basically a full rewrite. You're not editing the document from the original one. No, I find it, I find it sort of easier just to, I mean, it's just, I just think I have a very, um, I just, I, I have an uneconomical process basically in that I, I am, um, I know what I want to say. I know basically what my story is. I know who my characters are, but I haven't, I can't do that sort of deep dive thing that I know real plotters can do. Like I've got some friends who like they do all that in a plotting way. So they will, you know, they will go, they will plot their story out and that's where they find out. And I just, my brain for some reason doesn't work like that. So I have to write the story out. My first draft is basically an extended plan of my book. And then, and then I sort of know what I'm doing and can start. Is it, is it quite a lot shorter though? That kind of first draft, it's not going to be No, I mean, sometimes it can be longer. I mean, it's just weird. (laughs) I know it's just weird. It's a really, I would love to write in a different way and I can't but then I also know lots of writers who do do that as well so I feel like I mean the thing is is any way that you write a book is valid there's no sort of right or wrong so it's um you just have to I think you just have to accept what you do and go with it basically (laughs) yeah that I mean I've had an author on this podcast who does the first does the 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 in quotes vomit draft um by hand like literally with a pen on paper oh yeah no I always wanted to do that yeah. And then types it up. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I do know people who do that. And I think there is something to be said for like when I um when I edit, like when I get to like my third draft or something or whatever, I 
and I'm editing, I print it out and I make all my notes by hand on the page. And I do, there is something about changing how you do something or even changing what you're looking at that makes a difference I think like I see different things on screen that I see on the printed page I think I think it's really important to read your novel in both ways before you submit anything yeah I've um I've had quite a few people do a thing where they're when they're doing their redraft um probably not their like full major redraft but their, their kind of edits they'll change they'll they'll Control A, select all on the manuscript, and change the font to quite a different font. Oh yeah, and then of course. It in a different font. Yeah, no, I have heard of that actually. Yes, I haven't done that yet, but um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, funny how the human brain works. I know, uh, <laughs> I know. It is. I think some a lot of it is just tricking yourself actually. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, not great. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Well, that's that's really really cool. It's really interesting to hear about your process and things like that. And that yeah. does bring us to what is always the final question of every episode, mm-hmm. uh, which is, Araminta, if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book, which book do you hope that it would be? Well, I know, because I, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I have, I thought about it and I'm torn between like a comfort, like my all-time favorite novel, I think, is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, because mm-hmm. it's just yeah. like a to me, and I think if it was published today, it would be published as a thriller. I mean, it definitely would be published as a thriller. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, it's like there's no doubt about it. You know, that reveal when she comes down in the dress and everything. I think that, but I, um, in fact, there are many reveals in Rebecca. But I've read it so many times. I feel maybe I should pick War and Peace or something, which I've never read. <laughs> and it will take, it will take, it will take, um, hopefully until I'm rescued, because that would be my big aim if I was stranded on a desert island to be rescued. So um i i think i'll go for war and peace <laughs> yeah just the, the biggest book you can yeah find. <laughs> exactly that will just keep me occupied <laughs> yeah i mean a great choice and and, and a classic yes, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm forever trying to get myself to read more classics because every time i do i'm blown away by how good they well are, exactly but... but yeah war and peace is one of those books that you sat on my shelf forever and i haven't actually read it which is shocking but um <laughs> yeah it's sort of yeah i feel like and i feel like you could probably reread it about three times one after the other and you would it would be okay so i think it would keep you going for quite a few months basically <laughs> yeah yeah, you'd you'd hope so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with that many pages, it's got to right. Exactly. Amazing. Well, a, a great choice. Um, great to great to have another classic on the desert island. Um, thank you so much, Araminta, for coming on the podcast and telling us all about your your latest book, One of the Good Guys, which is out right now, um, as well as your writing process and kind of your 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 journey through and into uh, publishing. It's been really cool chatting with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And for anyone listening, if you want to keep up with what Araminta is doing, you can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Araminta Hall. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can listen to the podcast ad free and a week early on Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Araminta and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.